Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 134, and today I had a blast on this episode. I learned a lot, and one of the reasons I really enjoyed this episode is because one of the big challenges that I know that we had and a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners have is if I sell my business, well, I have enough money in passive income, and how do I make sure that I sell my business for enough money? Well, there's a lot of different things that you can do to actually make sure that you hit that equation. You could focus on increasing the value of your company, the multiple and the EBITDA, which Ken Sanginario was just on the podcast recently to share how you do that. So if you're interested in that, he is episode 131. You can do a bunch of different things on the deal structure. So whether you're doing a 338H10 and a stock sale, you could do a 1031 exchange with your building to hit your income so that way you could reduce the amount of needs that you had for the proceeds of the business. My point is there's a lot of different things you can do to maximize those proceeds and get the annual income that you need. But what if you can't hit your financial targets with what you currently have? You're either going to have to keep the business longer, save more money, it's going to be the long game, or you reduce your income needs. My point is you're going to run into this wall of, okay, I have what I have here. How do I deal with this? Well, it's so interesting because Bill Smith is on the show today. He is a strategic consultant for the Navigate Group. And Navigate Group and Bill have a very unique set of skills because they have a bunch of engineers and very, very intelligent people that are specializing in tax strategies like cost segregation, R&D tax credits. Also, this program that Bill's going to be talking about called the Leverage Funded Platform. They're also a PEO, so they are filled with a very, very solid bench full of technical, intelligent people that are about maximizing the money for the business owner and for the business. Bill has brought up a couple different technical strategies using what's called a leverage-funded program that is essentially a type of deferred comp, and it can be used specifically to fund the value gap and increase your income post-sale, or it can be used as a type of deferred comp for your key executives. And it's a little bit different than the typical insurance programs and products that are used for deferred comp. And it is crazy interesting. And I just absolutely think it's a must listen to because anybody that wants more income after they sell the company and wants to tie their executives to the business, to eventual outcomes in the business and the transaction, it's an absolute must to listen to because it's very actionable and it's very specific. And I use my curiosity to dive into it with Bill. So there's a couple other gold nuggets that Bill shares from some of the other skill sets that him and his company deal with. We talk about the R&D tax credit and a couple other very interesting things. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Without further ado, here's Bill Smith. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Bill, how are you doing? I'm great, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm excited to have you on the show. We have a mutual friend of ours, Ken Sanginario, who was just on the show recently that introduced us. Because uh, and I'll you know maybe even toot your horn before we get into it is I was like you know what 
I've got a lot of experience uh, designing comp plans for my previous business and I've also worked on executive comp and you know there's a lot of different ways to do it between phantom stock and insurance and all these different things and I was like you know I just haven't really met anybody that can design this stuff as creatively as what I think could be done and then mechanically put in a lot of the different creative technical solutions and products and services and such and then your name came up so hopefully that gives you a little bit of a a nice little warm introduction but for the people that don't know your background bill give us like you know how did you get into this space maybe a little bit of an overview of the business and the business model that you're in and then we can kind of jump into it sure absolutely <clears throat> so so navigate's basically a um uh, i call a strategic business solution provider so even though we're consultants, we're usually going into a situation where we're trying to provide a solution, which could be a product in some cases, to fulfill a, um, whether it be a tax or, or deficiency in a business owner's valuation or in um, certain benefit packages that he's trying to offer, he or she is trying to offer their key executives. So we come from a pension um, background and we've been 30 plus years designing, understanding pensions, and working in that world. And from that, we've obviously gotten to know a lot of business owners and understood where they're coming from when it comes to the ultimate succession of their their company, Um, especially when they're probably about five to 10 years away from what I would call the end game, where they're going to sell the business or transition it to a family member or a group of family members or their siblings or children or whatever. So we we want to get involved, probably Ryan, within at least ten years of that end game, for a couple reasons. Um, one is, and something that we've talked about before, is that a lot of business owners they're not only ill prepared for selling their companies uh, or even planning for succession, and there are a lot of professionals out there that can help them. But at the end of the day, are they really helping them, or are they just trying to get paid a fee? <laughs> we don't sell products. So we're not insurance guys, but we understand the insurance world. So we'll actually bring certain kinds of solutions to the business owner. So for example, we have a a leverage concept that basically will take the business owner, take a look at the company. So say we get Ken Sanginario's company to come in and do a business valuation. Guy originally thought it was worth $22 million or $20 million. It comes to find out it's only worth between 12 and 15 million. How is he going to fulfill that shortfall? Well, oftentimes He's going to try to superfund his 401k plan, which he can't because it's capitated based on highly compensation testing that they do for the non-highly compensated versus highly compensated um, employees. So there's a lot of restrictions in the traditional sense from a traditional pension or 401k scenario. So what will come in is analyze a specific subset, and that's to use a, a bank loan to lend the business money to superfund what they call an IUL contract, which is a no-load insurance contract. So again, we're not insurance people, so we're not going to get paid these huge commissions. We're just basically going to get paid a finder's fee for bringing the right contract in, and we're going to set up the, the financial structure. Just to kind of clear up for the listeners, are you, what are the services that you guys do? And then kind of how does that lend itself into the different types? Because I know, you know, in you, there was a, a merger recently. So there's like, and I think your model, like you said about the fee based and it's just an interesting approach to this. So just before, as you kind of dive into the, the leverage platform, I think is interesting. And how does that compare to like when you, you had mentioned previously, about, sure. you know, a lot of people are typically exposed to like, 
you know, insurance products that, you know, but they're very kind of basic and they're not tied to the overall outcome. So I didn't mean, to, I don't want to go back too far, but I think it's uh, an interesting kind of concept and background. Absolutely. There, there, are, there are three silos to the company. Um, excuse my uh, farming uh, analogy, but I grew up on a farm. <laughs> um, the, the first silo is a professional employer organization. What a PEO is, is basically a chassis where the business owner can have us take care of everything from uh, HR compliance, payroll benefits, and Fortune 500 kind of um, selecting benefit kind of criteria. And then what that does is it releases the business owner from the responsibility, liability, and compliance, quite frankly, of, of running the employees, which allows them then to focus on their primary objective, which is to improve top line results and profitability and EBITDA. And uh, as a business owner yourself, you know that if, you, if you're distracted and not focusing on those primary suspects and you're tied down and bogged down by employees, employee benefits, and every, all the minutia that goes along with that, that that's going <clears> to <throat> put a, a great strain on your ability to actually be profitable or to focus on the things that make your company profitable. So the PEO model is basically a, a, what I call it a release mechanism to give the business owner the ability to get rid of all that problematic employee management uh, and functionality that, that a lot of business owners get tied down to. And so that's the PEO side of things. Then we have our tax incentive group where we'll go into manufacturing firms, for an example, and we'll provide R&D tax credits. We'll do property tax uh, mitigation cost segregation studies, as well as um, a group of audit work that will provide uh, cost reduction in certain areas, whether it be shipping, freight, cellular, and that type of uh, a scenario. And then the third segue or silo is really our executive benefit of what I call the business owner group, which is where that sort of succession planning and the tools that we use in the succession planning um, environment come from. Well, I think it's helpful for the background too, because it's, you know, you, you've got a lot of analysts and people that are strategically behind the scenes. And so I think it's, it, it's, it lends itself to that you're not just, you know, slinging product, like you said. So I think it's just important to know that. And then I'm curious, how did that business owner group come around and what was like some, like, what was the origination of that? And how did, you know, cause as we go into the leverage, uh, plat leverage funded platform, these different things, how do those kind of mechanisms tie into like the ultimate outco uh, outcome and the goal of the group? Sure. The PEO is a more recent um, merger, if you will. It wasn't an acquisition. It was actually a merger. We took our tax incentive group and our uh, business owner group and, and merged them into the PEO so that the PEO would actually have tools and um, other other sort of benefits for the business owner other than just the PEO model. Because not, not to make the PEO or the professional employer organization seem like it's a smaller facet in the in the world that we deal in, but it is a benefit, sort of a payroll, sort of a solution. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of different uh, payroll solutions out there. Ours just happens to be a little bit more unique because it's actually built more for the business owner than it is for the sort of the old ADP or paycheck sort of mentality, which is really just to sell payroll mm -hmm. from that perspective. So my background being in pensions and 401k, I was always dealing with the business owners. And that's when we started um, finding solutions for them, which is, for instance, R&D tax credits. It's not unusual for us with a certain company, whether it be biotech or technology or even manufacturing firms to find 500 to a million dollars of tax credits. Well, if we can find that kind of 
monetary benefit for the business owner. It allows the business owner then to have capital to do certain things for himself or his partners or his key executives. And that sort of lends, leads into having the money to all of a sudden be able to provide those benefits that come from the, the business owner group. Yeah, super cool. I know. I don't know. Well, and I'm curious, Bill, of like what your experience is, because there's a lot of questions that I get from clients and um, people on the show or is like, why doesn't my CPA do this kind of stuff? Because, you know, you're talking tax and finance related stuff. I mean, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that I've had as I've had different accountants and CPAs on the, on the show is that it just depends on what the what the skill sets are from those people. I don't know if you've got any kind of two cents on know how that relates to their current CPA or their current um, accounting? Sure. You're going to find, Ryan, that maybe the top six to eight of the largest uh, national CPA firms will provide um, some of those tax incentives like R&D tax credit work, meaning that they have the engineers and they have the um, legal backgrounds and whatnot to be able to provide and proof those um, credits out. The, re- the vast majority of CPA firms, whether they're even large regionals all the way to the traditional you know, shop that maybe has 20 CPAs in it, they don't have the capacity or the uh, ability to provide those tax credits or proof them out, I should say, mm-hmm. for the business owner. So that's where we become partners with CPA firms, and we deal with a lot of them across the country to actually help them whether it be a Chinese wall situation where they're sort of um, offering it to their clients and we're doing it behind the scenes or oftentimes we're just referred in Got it. to do that kind of work. And so, again, yeah, when you, sense. when you find tax money for somebody or credits in this case, it gives you the ability to start really working with the business owner to find other solutions for them at the same time. Cause now yeah, you're a hero. Right. What are we doing with this money? <laughs> Let's spend it together. <laughs> We're working on one now, 900 employee uh, company that the credits could be as much as 2.5 to $3 million. So that, that, that goes a long way in, in making some decisions <laughs> on um, hiring a Ken Sanginario as an example to do a true business valuation because it costs money, right? Right. Yep. So then uh, well, let's kind of dive into the, you know, when we think about when a lot of, a lot of owners are thinking, okay, well, and I literally got I was in a, a, a client of mine yesterday. I talked to a gentleman this morning is like, how do we tie these key executives? Not only for like, how do we recruit them, tie them potentially to a transaction or transition to the right KPIs. And you know, where everybody's out, like, there's this interesting dy- dynamic where you get someone that's a badass and they always want equity or they want, you know, they're cause they're, they know that they're worth it. So there's this whole, I think dance that so many people do of like, what do we do with these key executives? How do we, you know, if I've got a value gap, like you're talking about, I can't give away anymore. So like, there's this whole, like, you know, if you want to call it like, um, in, in between no man's land of how do you handle this stuff? And I think a lot of people get, you know, they, they get pitched, you know, just normal insurance, but that doesn't necessarily tie it to the overall structure. So what are the different mechanisms that you use inside of that to actually uh, accomplish the goal? Sure. Absolutely. And, and, and you're right. Um, <clears throat> the traditional deferred compensation plan or phantom stock, which is dangerous in and of itself because it can create a tax liability, even though there's no asset to <laughs> offset the taxation. You've got to have the money is what it comes down to. <clears throat> the traditional deferred comp is usually funded with an insurance contract. 
but it's also usually funded with an insurance contract that seems to be more on the side of benefit of the insurance broker, not on the side of the business owner or the key executive from that perspective. So we helped design. We didn't actually design it by ourselves, but with a group that we um, used to do our background work and to create and design these products, created a no-load version of a deferred compensation funding vehicle, which is an index uh, universal life contract. Now, I know there's a dirty word. I just said insurance. But in reality, what it really comes down to is we're going to provide leverage, meaning funding, to fund the contract for the 10-year period, which is not unusual. That's a normal um, funding period where we're going to lend the business X amount of dollars per year to fund the contract with an ultimate benefit on the backside of that, which will include a death benefit, but also will include the projection of tax-free income for that key executive or business owner um, in 10 years, 15 years, or 20 years down the road, whenever they pull the trigger and have their their event, whether that be retirement or sale of the business. So our group will lend, um, I mean, in some cases, a couple millions, millions of dollars in some instances where they're funding larger groups and um, providing the leverage so that the business now has the capital to buy the contracts for the key executive or the business owner or the partners. And they're only going to be liable for paying the interest expense on the vehicle. So the business then in this case gets a tax deduction. And again, we're not taxed or CPA by any measure, but traditional tax code says that you can write off the interest uh, liability on the, on the loan because it's a corporate loan. So, the other thing, Ryan, is those loans do not impact any covenants with traditional uh, loans you, you from the bank. You were ahead of me. I was just going to ask you that. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they don't impact that because they're collateralized 100%. So uh, an easy example, we just did one for a business owner. $330,000 of the loan will be $330,000 for 10 years or $3.3 million over that 10-year period. And because the cash value of the contract being no load is exactly what the loan is to the bank, it's fully collateralized. So the bank has no issue with trying to subordinate other assets. It's so crazy. So, and and that's why I was excited to dive through this. So let's, if you're, if you're okay with it, let's kind of go through maybe a, a, an example. Like I think if you were to take like the the typical mid market company, so let's say, yeah, at a million, million or two in EBITDA and they've got, you know, three or four key executives all making a hundred and, 25 grand or something like that. And we know that the business is going to be worth 10 or 15 million bucks. And we, we got a ways to go because we have to like almost re-engineer, almost do the VOP Ken Sengenario stuff. We have to re-engineer how that EBITDA is, you know, are, you know, built because of the different value driver stuff. But the executives all want, you know, as you kind of, you know, level up your executive team, whether you're recruiting or bringing them on, you know, so many people, it's like, okay, equity or phantom equity, because we're trying to drive them in, you know, X amount of years to the transaction. So how, how do you put, like, what would be the steps in kind of the process of like determining how this works, how much to what executives and what, how do the contracts work? If there's KPIs, I don't know if I'm overloading with the question, but just kind of made No, 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 you're not, you're not at all, Ryan. In fact, you have to do it that way, especially with the executive. <laughs> and I'll, and I'll, I'll, just, I'll, I'll just quickly say, if it's just a business owner or his or her partners, those are easy numbers to sort of put together because you could do a, a, a VOP business valuation, 
come to find that the company is worth $15 million or in this three partners, $5 million each, but they all need $500,000 a year in retirement income when they retire. And obviously $5 million is mm-hmm. not going to do that for them. Mm-hmm. So that, that's it. And that's an easy way to back into the numbers. And then when, once we back into it, then we know what kind of death benefit has to be part of it, how much we have to lend the company. And then we also will know what the projection um, will be for the various ages of the partners in that case. So say you might have a 55-year-old down to a 40-year-old. Well, obviously, the funding for the 40-year-old is going to be less than the 55-year-old, as an example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but that's a business owner scenario. If you're using key executives, it sort of works the same way. And a key executive wants, uh, to your point, wants, wants two things. One is they want job stability. The other is they think they want a piece of the company, but they're afraid to um, have 100% endorsement for that because now they're on the hook. So if that company goes from, use a $15 million example again, and now it's worth $12 million in 10 years because you were, you were a horrible sales manager, even though you were the key executive, well, your, your valuation went down. So they also mm-hmm. want some guarantees. These vehicles will give them the guarantee and provide that sort of resource that gives them a death benefit for their family. Obviously, there's a death benefit portion of that that pays a loan back, but whatever the amount above and beyond the, the uh, loan that's paid back goes to the estate of that particular um, key executive's family. The cash value that builds up in those contracts obviously can come out tax-free if they get to that end game where they're, say, age 70 and now they want to retire. They'll get tax-free income for 25 years. And then there's obviously there's an ultimate event, which is usually death. And mm-hmm. the whatever the residual values in the contract will go to the estate or the family that's still existing at that time. Now, to, to really drive this home, the company that has built most of these platforms for us in conjunction with our sort of consulting uh, work. If the total premiums, Ryan, get to $1.5 to $2 million range, then the banks will actually arbitrage the debt. They won't even charge interest on the loan. What they will do in that case is they will take a piece of the death benefit in lieu of the loan interest that's normally paid on the loan. So now I've just taken a, a large case situation where I might have a, even a, a law firm that might have 20 partners. Mm-hmm. And now if they all borrow $100,000 from the lending group, which is $2 million, they're not even going to pay loan interest on that. Mm-hmm. What the bank is going to do is they're basically arbitraging, assuming that one of those guys or partners in that law firm is going to die, they're going to get paid their loan back. Um, but it's, Man, it's, is that at any point whether they're employed there or not employed there? Is that until the end? Well, uh, certainly, yeah. I mean, yeah, as yeah. a partner, if you leave the practice, you're gonna you're gonna have to take your contract with you or get bought yep. out. Yep. So, well, let's, if you, if you don't mind, kind of going back and actually kind of walking step by step to that. So, let's say you know, I mean, whether it's the business owner or the key executives, and you know, what are the typical numbers? And like, like maybe, I don't know if you got a, like a typical example you usually give, like, okay, we're going to borrow this much money and this is the premiums and how does the cash balance grow usually? And what are some typical numbers that you see from like start to finish on the benefits of these? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll use a, what I would call a typical 55-year-old business owner. That would normally, and let's say that that business owner wants $200,000 of additional tax-free income at retirement. And let's 
just pegged that the retirement date is going to be age 70. <clears throat> that loan would probably be in, a, in around the $200,000, $250,000 a year range. So full funding over the 10-year period would be between two and $2.5 million. The cash value is going to be worth significantly more than the $2.5 million because I don't know if, if you know about index contracts, but basically you can't lose principal. Um, you, the worst case scenario is if the stock market goes down 20%, you get a zero return percent return that year. Stock market goes up 20%, they have a cap on it of 12%. So you're always going to get at least 12% on the high side. And at the, on the low side, you're going to get zero or whatever number is in between. So those contracts don't lose principal and they don't lose um, value because they're always growing in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you look at the cycle, Ryan, when the markets were, were basically crapped out from 2007 through, say, 2012, um, those contracts still made money. Not a lot, you know, mm-hmm. maybe 2 or 3%, but they still made money. So there was no loss here. That's, mm-hmm. why, that's why they call them indexed, because they're indexed to performance, but never less than zero. So that, that gives the business owner or the key executive some um, guarantees, for lack of a better word, and, you know, peace of mind, if you will, that they're never going to have to worry about market performance and cycles and everything else that goes on in the world of investing. And that's why they, that's why this company will only use an indexed universal life contract because it's the only one that gives those guarantees where other contracts don't. So then in that situation, um, you're, you know, you're borrowing 200 to 250 a year. So does the bank lend it to you? So does it, does the bank lend it to you in annual like you know installments and then you just go back and pay the insurance company then and essentially it's just all a wash right i mean like i know there's a lot of technical stuff behind it but i'm saying like as far as how the the cash flow is flowing and then that's just getting funded on an annual basis and so the i mean and then the owners essentially if you're getting that tax-free income of 200 a year i mean that's essentially like saving up another five million bucks after tax that's correct that's correct based on on normal uh, traditional mortality tables, yeah, because a 70-year-old man is probably going to live on average till 84, 85. So there's at least 15 years mm-hmm. of distributions that will come out of that. In that case, it'd be $3 million if it was 15 years. But like Social Security, every everybody wants to beat the odds, so they want to live longer than that just to get their money back. But um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, like when you say, what are some of the other assumptions in that? So if you're 55 years old, and let's say we do this. So is it a 10 year term? So then you want to keep the business for at least 10 years and let's kind of go through the what ifs. Like what if the owner, like what kind of like, what, what does the balance sheet have to look like for that one? First of all, like what, you know, to get financing for borrowing 200, 250 grand a year, what does the typical EBITDA or revenue or profits have to look like? And then what happens if things happen between when they do that and then they actually, um, you know, the term, the, the contract's complete. You, you'll find most companies, Ryan, without using EBITDA, and it makes it a little easier if you understand uh, general revenue, companies between probably 10 million plus, if they're profitable, <clears throat> without a lot of um, cooking the books and whatnot, mm-hmm. you'll find that they're all pretty eligible for the lending part of it. There's very few cases in that range that we find any issues unless, again, it's just not a creditworthy customer. So there, there's that. There's still always that issue. You got to be a credit worthy customer. So then, what happens? Okay, so 
Which makes sense. Um, Cause again, like it doesn't have much to do with cash flow. If the bank's giving the loan, you're just paying the insurance company and the bank's already collateralized. So like every, <laughs> it's just a mechanism for the banks to sell product and the insurance to sell product on the benefit of the owner, which sounds fantastic. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I don't mean to make it, it that, um, that simple. The, but. No, the, the, the banks love the loans <laughs> because they're going to be a little bit higher uh, than say, say a traditional commercial loan is 4% right now. Yep. You're going to probably be paying five and a half percent to the bank for that kind of loan. So they're actually making a better return on their investment. <clears throat> they It's fully collateralized, so they have no risk. They don't own real estate, so they don't have to worry about market uh, going up and down on that standpoint because it's, it's basically cash. It's covering the, uh, the, the, the debt. Mm-hmm. As long as the business uh, owner continues to make the interest payments in a traditional sense, not the $2 million example I gave you earlier, then there's going to be a no, no issue with the bank. But if the business owner, say, has a bad business cycle for, say, two or three years and years um, six, seven, and eight and can't afford to pay the loan interest, at the, at the worst case, the business owner could cash the contract and pay the loan off and maybe come out with a $100,000 profit, as an example. So, yeah, that, what, what would be the typical on that two hundred annual payment, what would be the the, the interest on like the two and a half million dollar loan? In the the first year, it's well, 5% is easy math on $250,000. It's it's basically 50, you know, so so it's it's not like a corporate burden that they they can't. The other thing that they're allowed to do, and I don't want to make this more complex than it is, is a 10 year period. If a company has um, growing profitability and growing cash flow, they would probably want to start with the interest only on the smallest amount, which basically in this case would be $250,000. If it's a company that has stable uh, cash flow and wants to divide the interest payments into a 10-year period, so let's say that that's $70,000 a year for the loan over 10 years is the same number as if you started for year one at $15,000, year two at $30,000, Thirty-two thousand dollars a year, three at you know fifty-eight thousand dollars type of a thing. That's an escalating kind of an interest payment based on the fact that every year there's another tranche of two hundred fifty thousand dollars dumped in the contract. Right, right, right. Um, so they can streamline it, but it's deductible. And make too, equal, equal payments. Yeah, it's deductible anyway. But if they want to streamline it and accelerate it in the, in the early years by paying a higher month, amount on the interest yep. side, the banks are happy to do that. Mm-hmm. So what happens if something happens between, you know, along that, along the, the scenario that's run, if the business is sold or, you know, like if there are missed payment, like how did, like, what are, I mean, I'm sure that you, you answer the questions all that. What about all the what ifs that when, when life actually happens outside of the financial projections? <laughs> well, there's, there's three events. Um, one would be death. And if the, if the business owner dies or the key executive dies, then the loan will be paid off by the death benefit or the intrinsic cash value either way. But there's an event that happens. So obviously it triggers both the death benefit and there's still cash value in there. So in that case, the intrinsic value would go to the family of the business owner, the above and beyond amount after the loan, I mean, mm-hmm. to the uh, family or to the, the case, the executive, the same thing. If the business owner has a, an event, meaning he sells the company, um, he can make decisions, he or she can make decisions based on 
okay, I've got this contract. I've only funded it for seven years. I planned on funding it for 10 years. <clears throat> Do I take some of my sale proceeds from selling the business and put it into the contract? Because obviously I'm not credit worthy anymore because I sold the business. So the bank's not going to give me any more money. So he can make a decision on, I like the value where it is right now. That's fine. Seven years. Instead of getting $200,000 a year, I'm only going to get $170,000 a year in tax-free income. That's fine. I'll have to, you know, I sold the business sooner mm -hmm. than I thought. Um, and obviously, the third event is if they have um, financial difficulties, they can just back out of the loan and back out of the contract altogether. So, because, yeah, because the you might have some cash value there and then the insurance co company, I mean, everything just kind of nets itself out. So. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah it, well, right. use that example, Ryan. So, so in five years, at $250,000 a year, that is $1.25 million of money that the bank has given that business. And, you know, if, if, if he runs into trouble, he's got at least $1.25 in value. And he'll definitely have more based on what I explained with the index side of things. Yep, yep. So say that the contract's worth $1.4 million. He cancels it, takes this hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars, which, by the way, would be a taxable event because he didn't take it as tax-free distribution. But at least he's got one hundred and fifty thousand dollars that he's going to, he or she is going to get out of the contract. So that at least he knows that they are they're going to be okay from that standpoint. It just didn't work out to the projections, and mm -hmm. that happens. Business happens. Yeah, and life, right? <laughs> yeah. So what what are the what are the things that people need to know about the banks that are doing the loans and the insurance companies. I mean, obviously there's people like you and I that are helping the clients facilitate this entire situation, but you know, as far as the institutions that are, you know, behind the scenes of both of those people that, you know, are there institutions that are set up for success for this or ones that, that, that are not? And what are the questions that people can be asking? Should someone present something like this? I think that that's a great question on your part because, um, well, it's pretty easy with, with the firm that, that designed all of our um, portfolios for this particular company. It's uh, Zurich Life. So we'll just say that it's one of the largest in the world. Mm -hmm. You're not going to have any financial concerns from the integrity standpoint of that company. And all the banks that are doing the lending <clears throat> are companies and banks like Bank One, Harbor, uh, Harbor which is a regional Midwestern bank. There's a grouping of them, and what they do is oftentimes they'll they'll decide if they're going all in together as a team, or they're going to just do a one-off. Depends on situations and circumstances. Okay. And um, you know, as far as like with like if you're going to, I mean, I honestly I can't think of any reason why a business owner that owns a company that is five years out or more or or wouldn't do this. But the other question I was I was going to say is that. You know, just like you know, any of the phantom stock or deferred comp, the traditional deferred comp is the the way that the compensation structure is actually built around for the executive, right? Because you can give this stuff, but it's more about you know, I don't like. I'll just kind of maybe t you know, prime the, the conversation is like I always suggest that okay, tie like put the contract in place to tie the benefits of this stuff to the outcomes that the owner wants, right? So if one of the listeners said, okay, I want this EBITDA, you know, so $2 million EBITDA and a $10 million valuation. I've got three executives that are going to help me get there instead of giving them part of my proceeds or something like that. Maybe you get this leverage, leverage funded platform for the owner and a few of the executives, but you're going to receive certain benefits 
when certain things happen. So when we get to a certain valuation, when we, and then I like to suggest that people tie in a uh, stay bonus. So whether it's, you know, at closing, they get a chunk and then also at 12 or 18. So that way it's locking them in. So I don't know if you got any kind of two cents on like how this is tied in or some of the creative things you've seen people do on that end. Yes. You can actually set up a vesting schedule where the vesting schedule would be tied to performance. So if they're not hitting those criteria, whether it be from your perspective, an EBITDA number or a revenue uh, number or projected sales or revenue you know, type of number on the top line, then they can have a, a, um, a graded vesting schedule, if you will, that if you don't hit those targeted numbers, you're not going to be vested in that portion of whatever the benefit is. Mm-hmm. So um, if they make, in a 10-year period, and they only come up to 75% of goal, and they're only going to get 75% of the benefit, the residual or the remaining value would stay in the company. Got it. And then I was just going to, I was even thinking as like, as executives decide to leave and they, you know, forfeit their vesting or because they had, you know, an offer or something like that, it goes back to the company. And then would that inherently then be the owner's benefit? Well, yes. And it's the, the insured in that case would be the key executive. So mm-hmm. the key executive leaves the contract basically is unless the key executive wants to take the contract with him or her, you're they're basically that nothing's going to happen. They're just going to leave it behind and cash value would go to the business owner. And that would probably be the end game on that particular. But, but the, so essentially the contract, the, the cash value and the, the benefit would then go to the owner though. So they can pull the, they can yeah. just, so they pay the loan off, pay the loan off and take whatever the residual is for their own benefit. And because of what I was also thinking too, is, I mean, I'm assuming you can put stipulations in there that you're not allowed to take it, even though technically you probably could. Yeah, I'm assuming you could put in a contract because, I mean, oh. I could foresee, you know, someone stealing someone else's executive and saying, well, yeah, that's great. I'll just continue to pay for your, to, to, pay, to pay for your comp plan <laughs> so that you want to make sure. Well, they, they, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately for them, they could do that, I presume, unless there's a covenant from the company standpoint that doesn't allow that. That's what I'm saying. Like, if, the business owner said, if the business owner said, just go take it, I don't care, but I'm not responsible for it anymore. There's got to be a release mechanism somehow built into that. Got it. But, but it's up to the discretion of the owner. Cause like I just small, stupid examples. I had a key executive that I sent to college and all this stuff. And then if he left within certain period, he was going to have to pay for it. And three days after he got, after he graduated, he found another job where that company paid for everything. So I still was totally screwed. <laughs> but it was, <laughs> man, you gotta love people, right? I'm not, it's not funny, but well, I'm laughing. It's, it's idiocracy, right? I know. It's like you. The world ask, is full of idiocracies. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's why, like, you know, for the listeners, it's like, yeah, you can technically do that, but essentially, you put all the hooks in, so that way, that person's stuck in your business helping you, unless you, you know. But then you can, like, like you said, you can have release mechanisms where, if you decide to, you can. But you know, just being being cautious of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, you know, you you, you obviously the business owner is going to try, and we're going to recommend they protect themselves as best as possible because. You don't want to be held hostage by an employee, no matter how good they are, or what they're, or what part of integral part they are to the business. What are some typical like like maxed out? I mean, because like if someone had a profitable business and this is all ends up kind of being free money, especially as you look at the tax write off and stuff. So it's it's a significant ROI for an owner. What what are the typical 
policy sizes. And so if it, you know, if I were to take one for one and for one for me and all three of my executives, I mean, like, is there like a top a cap on all this stuff or like, because no, there's, there's no cap. As long as it's an insurable interest, which in this case it would be again, because it is a collateralized loan. It's not unusual. I rarely have we seen anything under $5 million in death benefit. And obviously that happens, Ryan, because of the various ages. You know, you might have somebody in your your age bracket. You might have somebody in the late 40s and 50s and whatnot. All depends on that. But the, the death benefit part of it will probably be at least $5 million mm-hmm. or more. And you'll usually see funding, um, small contracts, maybe $150,000 to $200,000 annually. Okay. Because you're usually talking about people that want to have tax-free income in six-figure denominations. So obviously, you're going to have the funding source being those kind of denominations as well. Well, and what I what I find so intriguing about all this, Bill, which is I, you know, which is why, like, in our five principles, the whole goal, like, in I don't need to go down this rabbit hole, but it's like know what you want. What is the financial targets you're trying to hit? What are the exit options? How do you maximize the value of your company and then hire a team? And then all the, the mechanisms that are suggested then overlap because everybody's working together on the estate plan, the financial plan, the business, the tech, like the exit, all that stuff is like a big jigsaw puzzle. And what I find intriguing about different tools like this is like, okay, let's say there's a family, you know, a family business that's listening that's out there. And the, you know, the parents want 250 grand a year in income. Well, they might not have to sell the business and like they could then gift wrap the business in an estate plan to the kids or someone because they don't need the proceeds. And then there's still a death benefit that shores up an estate to give it to the kids. So like you just kind of like solve different mechanisms that I, I technically allow you to increase your options because of some of the things you're solving. You, you hit it right on the head. Um, very common to see um, <clears throat> a dad and mom who you know bootstrapped the business 30 years ago wants their children to take over the business and they're looking for a way to get out but they lived a pretty good lifestyle and <clears throat> paid for college paid for all this kind of stuff and now they don't have enough money to sort of retire on and they need to they need the cash flow either from the business or they can super fund one of those contracts that we were just talking about and then the children can take over the business without that financial burden on their shoulders and mom and dad are going to go off into the sunset with their tax-free income for the rest of their lives. Well, and they can reduce the price of the business for tax purposes Correct. For, for their kids same, too. Same, same exact thing from an estate uh, planning yep. standpoint. Exactly. So then the, so the parents, what happens to that income stream? So then, then does that income stream just go away and then there's the death benefit? Yes. You so can't, you can't transfer it. Let's to say the, that, well, say you use the, the husband in this case and, and the contract was on his, his particular life and let's say that he's 70 years old and the kids now take over the business and the the cash value that's built up in there is $10 million and he starts taking the annual distributions and he dies at 85 years old, the death benefit would kick in at that time. And remember it was, and say it was $5 million just because we'll use a universal number. <clears throat> that number will waffle during the early distribution years, but towards the end of it, we'll actually go back to the $5 million number. So now as a state's going to get up or a spouse, if she's still alive, we'll get $5 million death. Got it. So it's super intriguing. I mean, and the, the timing has a lot to do with this. Cause I mean, when you say that, like, you know, you're trying to get to the 200 grand or whatever in, in tax-free income, it's, 
because the cash value of that policy that was being funded super is way above and beyond the, the, the loan payoff, right? Because I mean, you have to get, you have right. to have time that goes across before you can actually get the benefit that you're looking for. Yes, exactly. And those are, those are all actuarial studies done by the companies that we use to do the, the uh, presentations and proposals. Well, how does, how does this tie into, or as a replacement of, or how have you seen it like used with, I guess, in deferred, I mean, traditional deferred comp or traditional phantom stock or any of that other stuff? I mean, is there just, you know, interesting um, genetic makeups of these things that you've seen that, that have been really interesting and creative? No, I, I could, I, you, you could call this deferred comp only. It could be a freestanding version mm-hmm. of comp, if you will. That's more semantics in that case, Ryan. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think of this as something that's sort of a better version of a traditional deferred comp more right. than I think of this as something that's totally unique. Well, cause if you were like, I'm just thinking if you were to pay for like, if I'm a, if I'm running the business and I got to pay for, you know, call it the 15 to, you know, 50 grand of interest, it, it would just be going to a premium anyways. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, there's, there's, yeah. It's, yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're funding a traditional insurance contract and a deferred comp plan, you're paying probably a lot more just in premium than you would be in loan interest in this mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 it could be an alternative to a traditional deferred comp or an enhanced version of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's super intriguing. So what, are there any other, I mean, is this kind of like the, the, the horse that wins all the time or is there other things in that business owner um, group that you guys, other tools and other um, utilities that you're bringing to the table? Not in that particular world, no. Um, we're pretty narrow in our focus, and we want to stay narrow in our focus. We don't want to be uh, all things to all people. Number one, uh, yes, we're pension consultants, but that's a different world all into itself. We want to have a very specific engagement with a business owner or their key executives if they're trying to do something for their key executives and be very specific with what we're trying to offer them without convoluting it and coming up with 14 different versions and variations and Mm -hmm. concepts and whatnot, because all that does is confuse. (laughs) So we want to, we want to stay on the straight and narrow, quite frankly. I've been doing this for too long. I think the more you start opening up options, I think that the more confusion comes in, it usually leads to, to no decision. And we want proactive, uh, yes is not um, emotional, you know, 12 month, 18 month decisions where they're still confused, don't know which direction to go in. Why wouldn't someone do this? Sometimes the, the phrase too good to be true comes up, but in reality, if you look at the, an actual illustration or contract, it is, it's straight out, it is what it is. And there's no deviation, there's no magic pill. It's a basic straight contract with a loan from the bank and it works um, exactly the way it says it's going to work. I mean, do you have pushback from other advisors that get, you know, their hands into the different solutions that disagree with this and what are the other in, in insur- if insurance agents get involved, insurance brokers, usually CPAs are pretty cool with it. They actually like the concept for the most part, <clears throat> but other business advisors who are trying to sell something, We'll have a big problem with this. Because what what are the things that the that the listeners should be aware of, like that they would be selling instead of offering this up? 
well, a traditional deferred comp plan really is normally funded with a insurance contract and the broker is going to make a handsome commission on that transaction. Mm-hmm. And Ours then, is a fee-based platform. So we just get paid our basic fee and that's it. So how about um, the, like the, you said 10 million in revenue in the top is, so is this something where like anybody underneath 10 million in revenue, they should be maybe looking at more like, you know, traditional, like in other insurance products or phantom stock or something like that. We, we, we could, we'll always have a dialogue, Ryan, um, no matter what size the company is, but certainly um, the dialogue or conversation is going to be very short with a smaller company or a smaller footprint. Mm-hmm. So if, I mean, is there any like two cents that you want to leave with the listeners? Is there something that, it, I mean, it's so, it's so straightforward, Bill. It's like, it's hard to, like yeah. you said. I know. It's exactly what I want it to be. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I had, I had this gal on who, had, uh, um, who does cost segregation and it's like, yeah, that just makes a ton of sense. So you, whether it's cost seg or it's R&D tax credit, you find more money, you take it from the government, and then you buy yourself a policy like this. <laughs> well, and I, I'll give you, I, I, knowing cost seg and understanding that world, it's amazing how many business owners with commercial property um, won't do it because they're afraid the IRS is going to come challenge their tax return. But it's crazy. Like the, this gal that I, that her name is Jody Nielsen for the listeners. I don't remember what podcast number it was, but, um, and we can have it in the show notes is they've done two twenty thousand 20,000 of these studies and never been challenged. So it's like, okay, well, that's a, that's a pretty good run, run weight. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Yep. It is. But sometimes even when we do our and D tax credit work for our clients, that question oftentimes comes up as, is one of their fears. Am I, am I going to have an IRS audit because I'm doing it? Well, because so, we got, like she does with cost tag, we, we sometimes right. get some pushback on R&D for the same thing. Well, I was just going to say, because we have some time, Bill, um, I don't know if you want to give a little bit of an overview of the R&D tax credit, because I know th- some things changed recently, I believe. So um, and actually, I have a couple of clients that are specifically interested in this uh, right now as they're looking at last year. So I don't know if you want to maybe just give a kind of a if sure. you enough time to kind of give an overview. Yeah. Absolutely, and it won't, it won't take long either. Um, in 2016, Congress um, permanentized the um, R&D tax credit, where previous years, it was a year-in, year-out decision whether or not Congress was going to allow it to go forward. So that, that was number one. <clears throat> number two is the PATH Act is part of the provisions of the new tax act, which allows um, startups now to participate in the R&D tax credits, where historically, you had to be a profitable company because they didn't have profit. What are you going to do with the tax credits? You can't use them, basically. So now startups can actually participate and use it against offset payroll taxes hmm. in the first five years of their existence. Third change that they made, which is why R&D, while it was important to a lot of business owners, they, a lot of business owners would get trapped with alternative minimum tax. So when the AMT kicked in, they couldn't use the credit. Well, the tax act, in 2016, now this allows the wrong word. Now mm-hmm. you can use the credits and it doesn't create AMT. So now they can fully use all the credits against any tax liability. So then what for the listeners that might not be overly familiar with R&D tax credit, can you kind of give a, a, like a one-on-one overview of like, what is it and what are the certain things that qualify? Sure. There are, there are basically four components. It has to be technological in nature, change of process, a definition or, or um, creating something that, that proofs out 
uncertainty in, in, a, in a process, if you will, and it has to be um, of, a, of a technology um, that does something like a patent or, um, or even in a manufacturing firm that they might be creating this, 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 um, this widget and now they've created another CAD CAM system or whatever else with a new tool and die that creates a different version of it. Just any of those kind of processes that a company does, any change of process period basically is what it comes down to, is usually eligible for R&D tax credits. And R&D tax credits, Ryan, are usually predicated and benchmarked off of payroll. So for every million dollars of payroll that a company has, there will be about thirty-five dollars to $70,000 of credits available for, that, for every million dollars that we process through the system. So obviously, if you have a, um, a company with $10 million payroll, you could be looking at some significant um, credits that are available to the business from that perspective. And similar to the woman you mentioned under Costag, our firm has never lost or been challenged on any of the work we do because when we proof out the uh, R&Ds to begin with, when we do the initial study and proposal, we know that they're going to be eligible for them. Otherwise, we won't advance the project. So, and for the kind of the, the a layer underneath it, as far as the definition of what people are doing, is it is it their payroll is doing the the literally the development and R and D, or does it come because I got clients where you know they spent a quarter million dollars with some internal payroll, you know, a couple of people get paid a hundred grand a year that are devoted to this, but also outside vendors that they pay to cut you know a lot of money to too as well. So, how does the internal versus external factor into it? Um, any anybody that works on the Technology, call it technology for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. um, that works on a technology, whether they're outsourced or in-house uh, staff, that payment or payroll component is part of the R&D uh, credit. So then if it's someone like... Uh, including, the, yeah. including the president and the owners of the business as well, because they, they will always, in some form or fashion, be touching a project, even if it's from, right. the, from, the, from right. a distance. So like... Yes. Uh, Bill, like, you know, I'm just thinking like even personally back when, right before we sold the business, probably about a year prior, we spent about 300 grand on a new ERP system. And then I hired a gal that was 90 grand to help implement it. And then like it touched every single facet of our business from pay, like from the people. So like all of that, would that be qualified or is it more just, Hey, this is stuff that you're developing a new system that will have IP and that could be resold to other people. And if you're developing a technology, which it sounds like you were from an IP standpoint in this case, then you would then we would proof out credits from that. Yeah. Now that that person, the example with the ninety thousand, the outsourced person, maybe only fifty percent of his or her um, income might be eligible. But that's our job to, yep. to uh, find those numbers. And, and we don't, um, Ryan start a project unless we know we're going to find the credit. So we'll tell, tell a business owner not to bother if, mm-hmm. if, if we think it's not worth their um, time because it takes a little bit of time. Well, I think, you know, it, it, as we're kind of wrapping up, I mean, it, it's, it, it's trying to find the money that you can, you know, additional cash flow today to reinvest in the business to increase the value of your business or your cash flow post-exit. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole game. Yeah. Right? The whole point yeah, of having yeah, a company. Exactly. <laughs> Well, I, I, I look at it, um, the, the way we help companies, obviously, with what we offer is if, if, if I'm doing an R&D tax credit project for this business owner, and now I find them a half a million dollars, 
now I've got a, a, an opportunity to discuss um, leveraging his retirement program in planning. And so now I can bring in the experts like yourself or Ken, as we spoke about earlier, or maybe they do own a commercial property and they want to have somebody come do a cost segregation study on it. So we want to bring those, those um, resources um, from our tool belt and be able to help those business owners to find more money. So at the end of the day, when they go through the business succession part of things and they sell the company, we can have a dialogue with their attorneys and the tax people about what's the best way for them to sell the business. They just sell it or they try to go into an M453 monetized installment sale, or they just want to pay the taxes and be done with it. Mm-hmm. But at least we're part of that conversation throughout the, um, the transition. And if, I don't know if we want to go down the installment sale thing that you're talking about, because I'm, I'm just I keep pulling this thread and I keep forgetting uh, that there was a couple other things. I mean, I don't know if you want to go down that or maybe we do a different episode on it. I think you probably want to focus on that could be a better use of our time. I think when we're talking about tax strategies and uh, actually the, the end game for the business owner, it's, 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 it's most people know what a 1031 exchange is. So this is sort of taking a 1031 exchange concept to the next level because it's not just transfer of property to another property. It's actually an actual sale. So that's a lot different than mm-hmm. you know converting a um, farmland to a commercial property type of thing. Well, well, we'll put a little pin in that for the listeners as we're as we tee that up for a follow-up conversation with you, Bill, because it's uh, so much actionable stuff, which is the whole point, right? Um, if exactly. The- Listeners want to get in touch with you, want to learn more about you and the business. What's the best way? Um, probably just direct contact, 617-529-8577. I prefer to have a conversation with people. Oftentimes, emails get smattered and whatnot. And they can always check my profile on LinkedIn if they'd, if they'd prefer that too. Bill, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a blast. Thank you, Brian. Take care. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. If you have some takeaways, I think the biggest takeaway should be check this out, reach out to me, reach out to Bill, talk to anybody that can help you determine whether this program is right for you or it's right for your executives, because I can't believe that this is something that is not being more optimized and utilized out in the marketplace because it makes so much sense. If you can afford to pay the interest payments, why not take a look at this? Because there's not a whole lot of downside. And if there is, let's get on the horn and actually dive in to figure out why it wouldn't be for you. So if you have any questions, reach out to me, Ryan at GEXPcollaborative.com. Reach out to Bill Smith. Let's chat. Otherwise, check out the show notes. We'll have all the links in it. And if you have time, please reach out onto iTunes. Give me a rating. I would appreciate it so much. And then if you have anybody that you think would be a good guests for the podcast because they're an owner who have sold or it's another piece of technical information like what Bill did today, reach out. Let me have him on the show because I want to give you more content as much as I possibly can. So with that, I will see you next week.